Father, we didn't gather to ease our conscience. We didn't gather to check a box. We didn't gather to fulfill some religious duty. We gathered to worship you. We are not here to play games. We are here to do what we were created to do. You created us as worshipers. We need more clarity on that, Lord. We are doing it, but at times doing it half-heartedly, inappropriately, nonchalantly. Help us to be truer worshipers after being exposed to this text. As we give ourselves to the study of your word, would you eliminate distractions and focus our minds to receive your truth? Would you use this text to build your church, to make your bride pure, to feed your sheep? Would you add stones to the house this day? <laughs> Convert people. Quarry out another stone for your own glory. And do it through quite an unexpected text. As you place us in your building, would you chisel us? Shape us to fit perfectly in the spot you've designed. Some here are flirting with sin. Getting lazy in their spiritual disciplines. Losing the wonder of it all. Taking grace for granted. No longer moved by mercy. We do not even realize how close we are to shipwrecking our faith. Sin has blinded us that much. Please, Father, by your Spirit, call out our sin. Help us again to run to the redemptive work of Christ and see it as beautiful. To see it as the only means of atonement. Do it, Lord. And this will be another Sunday in which we leave amazed by the supernatural power of your word. This is our corporate plea. Amen. We've been working verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians. You could call chapters 1 through 4 division in the church. Now we get to chapter 5, discipline in the church. This text deals with the neglected practice of church discipline. To ease us into the passage, let's look at a loose culture and a local church. A loose culture and a local church. The environment in which the church at Corinth existed is much like the environment in which FFC exists. There are striking similarities between their culture and ours. Corinth was a city that had a long history of gender confusion and sexual perversion. They encouraged sex before marriage. Homosexuality was widely practiced and tolerated in Corinth. Sexual permissiveness ran rampant. They had prostitutes. In fact, it was the prostitute capital of the world. They had strip clubs. They had bisexuality. They had swingers and open marriages. They had people in drag reading to kids in libraries. Just about anything you can think of that happens in our present day happened repeatedly and continually in the city of Corinth. The culture was marked by perversion and promiscuity and tolerance. They were known for embracing sexual alternative lifestyles. We too live in a highly sexualized culture. Your children are growing up in it. Cohabitation before marriage is promoted and expected. Homosexuality and pornography are now openly celebrated. God is going to place a people Right in the middle of all of that. In the midst of a loose culture, God places a local church. How is this local church doing representing Christ in a culture like that? Verse 1. It is actually reported 
that there is sexual immorality among you. The English phrase here, sexual immorality, is translated from the Greek word pornea. Pornea, where we get our word pornography. It's a broad term designating any type of sexual sin. It's a, what I call a junk drawer word. It encompasses prostitution, bestiality, homosexuality, sex outside of marriage, extramarital affairs, everything. Paul says it's reported, meaning it's the talk of the town. It's the conversation in Corinth. Verse 1 continues, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. What could possibly be going on in the church that wasn't already going on in Corinth? How did the church become just as loose as the culture? The church at Corinth were going beyond even what the pagans were doing. They were out Corinthianing Corinth. When the non-Christians are going, oh, that's nasty. You know it's got to be bad. A pagan culture that permitted all kinds of promiscuity drew the line here. We don't even tolerate that. When the whole pornography industry is going, ugh, you know they've crossed some sick line. There were things going on in that church that didn't even go on on spring break. You don't even need Christianity to repute this. The pagan neighbors who were okay with everything were not okay with this. Verse 1 continues and reveals what it was. For a man has his father's wife. <laughs> this is a particularly outrageous case in the church. This is certainly his stepmother, not his biological mother. The language Paul uses here is clear. If it were his mother, he would have just said mother. Nor is this a case of mistaken identity. One of my kids came home from school one time and said that someone in their class had to break up with someone else in their class because their parents found out they were cousins. <laughs> I love living in Kentucky. <laughs> I, I really do. This isn't a case of mistaken identity. This man knew this woman was his stepmother. His father divorced his mother or his mother died. Either way, the father now has a new wife. The second wife is typically a lot younger than the first and could have been closer to the son's age. This is not a one-time event, but a continual open act. It's been going on for some time and it's still going on. The verb tense points it out. It's present tense, meaning it's ongoing. It's flagrant. This is an incestuous relationship. There is a man in the church engaged in incest. Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 22 condemn incest. But Corinth didn't even need the Bible to condemn it. In the century prior to Paul, the Roman orator Cicero expressed disgust with this particular sin. He claims it was virtually unheard of in, in the Roman society because it was strictly forbidden. Now, even though this man and his stepmother were not blood-related... It was still considered incest. We don't know why the church excused this behavior. How they talked themselves into saying that it was okay. They, they rationalized it some way. Maybe they excused it on the basis of some perversion of an obscure inheritance law. Either, either way, they refused to renounce the sin. And maybe this man was of a high social status and they were proud to have him as a church member maybe he was wealthy and they couldn't risk losing his tithe check they will accommodate the sins of the wealthy apparently they were reluctant to offend and broad-minded enough to accept they allow gross immorality in their midst they were welcoming him and his lifestyle it's evil and wicked for a church to accept an alternative lifestyle. It's evil and wicked for a church to accept an alternative lifestyle. 
the church's lack of disapproval makes this whole situation despicable. FFC, you should not be endorsing a lifestyle that God condemns. Do not show indifference towards something that God shows anger toward. Well, I, I mean, well, who am I to judge if that lifestyle is wrong? It's wrong for me. I don't know if it's wrong for them. God determines what is wrong for everyone. This church actually took pride in their willingness to accept something God had clearly condemned. Look at the beginning of verse 2. And you are arrogant. They thought they were being spiritually elite by accepting immorality within their membership. By their welcoming, they thought they were being spiritually superior. They saw tolerance as a mark of love. But write it down. God did not see it as loving. He saw it as prideful, arrogant. Well, if, if you loved me, you would accept me. No, if I loved you, I would call you to repent of the lifestyle that Jesus condemns. The church is not inclusive. Paul's teaching means that the church is not for all people without qualification. It is for those who submit to the commands of God. And this gentleman would not submit to the commands of God. God sees a church that affirms a lifestyle of sin not as progressive but as prideful. God sees a church that affirms a lifestyle of sin not as progressive but as prideful. Even verse 6 says the church was boasting about their decision to accept this man. The only kind of theology that gives rise to boasting and immorality is a theology that misunderstands the power of grace and then turns it into license. I'm not sure if the church at Corinth was going, you know, this, this is how we show we are progressive-minded and, and modern and, and loving. No, this is how you show no regard for the word of God. The church allowed this man to follow his own feelings instead of the word of God. But Kyle, you, you can't help who you love, right? Your love can, can be sinful, friend. But God accepts me. How, how can you reject me? I, I don't know what God you're reading after, but it is not the God of the Bible. He doesn't accept that. This particular case is incest. Now, you, you, can, you can plug and play any alternative, any uh, alternative unbiblical lifestyle. Uh, homosexuality, sex before marriage, transgender, bestiality, whatever. But God is a God of love. I, I'll tell you what God loves. God loves a pure church. God loves a people who obey his word over their sinful feelings. God loves his own holiness, and you're violating it. The church has developed a sentimentalized view of love. It's a Hallmark movie love, not a biblical love. Love in the Bible is holy. It makes demands. It yields obedience. We worship a holy God, and he declares incest wrong. Whatever he declares sin is sin. He has the right to declare. We need to hate the sin he hates in ourselves and in others. Verse 2 continues. Ought you not rather to mourn? The word mourn here speaks of deep anguish of soul. It speaks of mourning at a funeral. Mourning over a death. Mourning over a dead body. Paul says the church should, the, this sin in the church should make you cry. It should bring you to your knees. Why are you still standing? There should be deep sorrow. It's tragic when the church ceases to grieve over sin in the body. 
It's tragic when the church ceases to grieve over sin in the body. Paul says it doesn't even faze you, but it should break your heart. When a child, when a church ceases to be shook by sin in the membership, they are in a dangerous spot. What should outrage and disgust them doesn't even yield emotions anymore. They've grown callous and insensitive towards sin. Oh, the church is moving forward. The church is growing. But the church stopped mourning. Ah, giving has never been higher. Attendance has never been larger. Buildings have never been nicer. But sin is no longer grieved. When a church ceases to deal with sin in their membership, it is a blight on the bride of Christ. When a church ceases to deal with sin in their membership, it is a blight on the bride of Christ. It's a public contradiction. It threatens your very identity as Christians. Paul heightens the situation by grouping the church with pagans. (laughs) Not a favorable comparison. It's not the church's action that sickens Paul. It's their inaction. Maybe now this couple has moved in together. And they're still going to church, posting Bible verses on social media. They talk of God while in the midst of their unrepentant immorality. There are churches, many of them, quite a few around us, that have people in their worship band engaged in intimacy with people to whom they're not married. Some are living with people. They're not married to and doing worship songs on Sunday. Well, the church needs a drummer, so we'll let it slip. The church, the church allowed sin to go unchallenged. It is reprehensible to ignore the sin. Their proud, affirming hearts are destroying the witness of the church. The church has lost its power to attract the world with holiness. Theology is replaced with theatrics. By leaving the sin uncorrected, they are harming the church. The church's witness to the world is damaged when sin goes uncalled out. Non-Christians, you know this, it hurt the testimony of the church with you, didn't it? Some of you have rejected Christ for years because you've been around churches that don't do discipline. You know a deacon who had affairs during the week but prayed for the offering every Sunday. A lady who hooks up with gym mates but is on the worship team. The talk of the town should be the peculiarness of the people in the church, not the sin of the people in the church. Hey, FFC, Corinth knows what goes on among us. They know if we are like them or unlike them. One old preacher used to say it like this. A pure church is a powerful church. An impure church is a paralyzed church. The church is to be distinct from the society as a whole. Not a reflection of society. The church has to be different from the world to reach the world. All the way back to God's people Israel. He made them distinct among other nations. Parents. Parents, will you listen to me? When your children see a church ignoring and being indifferent toward unrepentant sin in the congregation, it will have lasting, terrible effects on their view of God. Verse 2. Let him, is is continuing here, let him who has done this be removed from among you. (laughs) Like a cancer, cut it out. Remove it from the body. Remove that person from the church. No fewer than six times. Remove him. This is not hateful or spiteful or hypocritical or pharisaical. No. You do this because you love God and you love that brother. Do the words love and church discipline sound contradictory? Carl Laney, professor at Western Seminary, points out 
that the church, that a church that neglects to confront and correct its members is not being unkind or forgiving or, or is not being kind or forgiving or gracious. Such a church is really hindering the Lord's work and the advance of the gospel. The church without discipline is a church without purity and power. End quote. Church, remember, this letter was read publicly in the gathered assembly. This man was sitting in a church on the Lord's Day morning. Imagine his face when he heard these words read publicly. Remove him from among you. Excommunicate that man. Verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. Now, this, this is not spooky. Like Paul is some ghost floating around. He's, he's, his spirit is not hovering over the pews. No, this is simply saying, I'm not physically with you, but I'm with you in spirit. Do this hard thing. Verse 3 continues. And, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Paul has already passed judgment. They just need to carry it out. In the U.S., we have a fear. We have an unhealthy fear of being perceived as judgmental or unreasonable. We are allergic to judging people. Paul says, judge the sin. So for those who say, you know, unless you sit down with them over lunch and spend hours talking to them and counseling them, you can't call out their sin. Psh! Paul said, I'm not even there. And I already called it sin. We have to get rid of this idea that speaking the truth is judging. Telling someone the truth is not judging them. Now, Apollos, their pastor, has dropped the ball. He has not led the church well in this area. He could preach up a storm, but he couldn't discipline sin. Being a faithful pastor requires more than giving the sheep good doctrine. That's the fun part. It also requires hard conversations when people refuse to repent of their sin. Verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Let's, let's pause here. Paul is telling them to do church discipline in public. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, when the body is gathered together, this is something happening publicly, not privately. You can't simply look away. You need to bring it out in the open. You, you've danced around this sin. Now you need to put your foot on the throat of this sin. They are gathering, the text says, under the authority of Jesus and are provisionally speaking for Christ. You are to do more than just bring this brother's sin up to the church members, verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, Paul did this himself. He handed over uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan. Could you imagine a more strongly worded sentence? Hand him over to Satan. Put him in Satan's palm. Now, I'm going to tell you what this could mean, what this doesn't mean, and what this absolutely means. I'm going to tell you what this could mean, what this doesn't mean, and what it absolutely means. It could mean that you hand this brother over to physical suffering, some physical illness or death. That God will allow Satan to bring terrible things into this person's life in order to bring them to repentance. There is suffering, but it is remedial. There, Satan becomes the means under God's sovereign control to purify the man. I think it was John Piper who once preached a sermon entitled, How Satan Saves a Soul. Re remember when, when God handed Job over to Satan for a time? So it is with this man. It could be boils, it could be blindness, it could be AIDS. But it would be comparatively nothing if it saved his soul from hell. A messenger of Satan to drive him back to God. Chrysostom, an early church theologian, and many reform brothers hold to this position. 
And they all use Job as an example to prove their point. John MacArthur said, uh, to protect the church, the Lord will take this man home early if necessary. Now, I think the text could mean that. It's possible. I would hate to speak against 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John MacArthur, John Piper, and John Calvin. <laughs> but I would just point out that when Job was handed over to Satan, it was not as a result of Job's sin. The man in the church, when he's handed over to Satan, is as a result of his sin. Also, nowhere else does destruction of the flesh refer to sickness. So I don't think the flesh is talking about the physical body, rather his, his sinful, stubborn orientation toward life. Now, I told you what it could mean. Now, what it doesn't mean. Turning this man over to Satan doesn't mean to deprive him of salvation. We can't do that. Paul doesn't have the power to condemn people to hell. No church or person has that authority. But the church does have the responsibility to say, you embracing sin this way leads to judgment. So I told you what it could mean, what it doesn't mean, and now what it absolutely means. It absolutely means the church removes their affirmation from his confession of faith. The church is publicly removing the approval of this person as a Christian. It absolutely means he is not participating in the privileges of the church. He is no longer a member. The church will no longer affirm the person as part of the body. Put him out of the church and into the world. He now lacks the protection of the church. Put him out of the church and into the world. He now lacks the protection of the church. There is protection in the church. This man is forced to live in the world, which is ruled by Satan. He's back in Satan's domain. Garrett Kell says Satan has a unique sort of freedom to attack him now. It seems when in fellowship and in good standing with the local church, this man enjoyed some type of protection. The church serves to protect you. The New Testament assumes you are in fellowship with other Christians in a local church. Don't just attend here. Be a member here. Get in the body. Sitting in the service doesn't, doesn't mean you're being in the family. Why do we put him out? Verse 5 continues, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You excommunicate this man for his own good. There are evangelistic purposes in church discipline. It's such tough love that it may arrest his attention and plow the hard soil of his heart where the gospel seed can truly take root. The purpose of church discipline is never to take revenge or pour out anger. It's always to save that person. And maybe by God's embarrassing, disciplining grace, this man may wake up to the seriousness of his sin and repent. This supports the idea that church discipline will ideally, if not inevitably, lead to the person's salvation. Paul expects to see this brother repent and be with the sheep on the final day. Those who persist in unrepentant, deliberate, habitual, flagrant sin must be disciplined by the church. Those who persist in unrepentant, deliberate, habitual, flagrant sin must be disciplined by the church. It is difficult to deal with sin that has not been exposed. Paul exposes the sin to the church. It is always a grace when sin is exposed. It is always a grace when sin is exposed. Blatant, unrepentant sin should not be tolerated in the church. If you're visiting here, you're not a member, take this next sentence off. Church members of FFC, if you have unconfessed, repeated, unrepentant, ongoing, public sin, we will hand you over to Satan. This is strong medicine. In Calvary love, we cut you off and put you out lest you ruin the witness of the church and damn your own soul. 
If I have unconfessed, unrepented, repeated public sin, you will turn me over to Satan. God preserves the holiness of his people by church discipline. And when we refuse to do church discipline, we lie about the holiness of God. We lie and say that God has not called his people to be holy like he is holy. How many of you parents have more than one child? Would you, would you raise your hand? It's, it's all of you. <laughs> parents, when you discipline one child, the other children sit up straight. And you say, does that really happen? Yes, try that. All right, try that. All right, let me get back. When you discipline one child, the other children sit up straight. The same is true in the church. We've had to do church discipline in our church. We've had to do it in the past. Not so distant past. And we will have to do it in the future. There's a process to church discipline. This passage is the fourth step in the process Jesus gave us the process in Matthew 18. He detailed that it begins with private warnings, and when they are not heeded, you take it to the next step. If the man or woman continues to run all the stop signs, it results in being excommunicated. The goal of church discipline is not to throw people out of the church. The goal is always restoration. The majority of all church discipline situations at FFC resulted in restoration. Where there is repentance, there is always, always a pathway back to fellowship. This instruction, of course, is, is not talking about someone who struggles with sin, but someone who is continually self-justifying their sin and never repenting. In our text, this is not a one-night stand followed by a broken-hearted repentance. If you repent then there is love, support, grace, mercy. The church doesn't push you away. The church pulls you closer. There are two options. Repentance or church discipline. There are some cases that go the full length and end in total excommunication. When someone charges forward in their sin, saying, I'm going to have my sin and I'm going to have Jesus then we have our marching orders. Paul then says, all right, let me illustrate this. There's a danger to inaction. This is what will take place if you do not practice church discipline. Here's what will happen, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, I struggle with this verse because... It's all about making bread. And I'm not a cook or a baker. I don't know how to make anything. I can only make cereal. When my wife leaves, I eat cereal for every meal. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. She tells me, if, if, if I ever die, you're going to have to get married on the way home from the funeral. <laughs> Some of you make bread each week, and you're going to be able to track with this better than I. Leaven and yeast, really. Leaven is an agent that causes bread to rise. It spreads quietly. It works through the whole batch of dough. In our text here, leaven stands for what is evil and corrupting. How leaven spreads becomes an image for how sin spreads. Fermentation spreads and makes the bread lighter. Likewise, foul fermentation in the church spreads and makes the church polluted. I think leaven and yeast are a type of fungus, right? It, it grows and multiplies quickly. Before you know it, the whole batch is filled with it. We understand the argument Paul is making. Sin does not remain static. Given time, it cannot be isolated. It cannot be contained. Unrepentant sin is a contagion that can spread and pollute the entire church. It's like a cancer in a body. Sin is like a cancer in the church body. It spreads and grows until it kills. They did not understand the corrupting nature of sin. 
Remove the unrepentant sinner or his sin will spread throughout the church. Sin is contagious when it's tolerated. It's small but powerful and it works secretly. Mark Dever says, sin that no one deals with is sin that everyone deals with. Now, if you don't know bread, maybe you know cheese. <laughs> Be assured, if not dealt with, this mold will spread throughout the whole cheese. Another modern equivalent, apples. One rotten apple can spoil the whole barrel. No barrel can resist a single bad apple, no matter how nice and expensive the barrel. This man's sin will spread like kudzu in the church. Churches that do not practice church discipline do not see sin as that big of a threat. Churches that do not practice church discipline do not see sin as that big of a threat. I read an article entitled 12 Reasons Why Churches Don't Do Church Discipline. It listed things like they don't know the Bible's teaching on discipline. They've never seen it done before. They've had a bad experience with discipline in the past. The church is afraid to open Pandora's box. But ultimately it's this. Churches do not practice church discipline because they do not see sin as that big of a threat. Church discipline is required of every church no matter the denomination. It's binding on the life of all churches. The reformers counted discipline as one of the marks of a true church along with the gospel rightly proclaimed and the ordinances duly administered. A mark of the church, meaning if you don't practice it, you're not a true church. The reformers had three marks of a true church. Mark Dever has nine marks. Either way, church discipline is always a mark. Mega churches tend to shy away from any form of church discipline because it hurts their superficial numbers. Church discipline is not the best church growth model. But the goal is not to grow the church in numbers, but to grow the church in purity. Baptist theologian John Dagg in the 1800s warned, when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. There is more moral laxity in the church now than ever. Bragging about how much money they gave to missionaries, how many ministries they have, how many ladies' fellowships they put on. God will not bless a church that sweeps sin under the rug. We do discipline for the salvation of the one in sin, the purity of the body, and the glory of God alone. We do church discipline for the salvation of the one in sin, the purity of the body, and for the glory of God alone. In verses 7 and 8, Paul appeals to the yearly festivals of Passover and unleavened bread when the Jews cast out all the old leaven from their houses. It was a, a ceremonial removal. Verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. This is more than spring cleaning. They took drastic measures. Charles Spurgeon said they grew strict in their ritual and would go through the, the whole of the house on a certain day to search for every particle of leavened bread. It was generally done in the evening with a candle and the servants and others would accompany the good man of the house to search for every crumb. Clothes were shaken, cupboards were emptied, drawers were opened, and if a mouse ran across the room and might be supposed to carry a crumb of bread into its hole, they trembled lest a curse should rest on the house. This is symbolic of sin in the home. Removing sin from the house. For the week after Passover, after the Passover lamb was sacrificed in Israel, the house was supposed to be free from all leaven. Eating leaven during the seven-day period incurred the severest penalty of being cut off in Israel. Spinning out of this metaphor, Paul says in verse 7, as you really are unleavened 
For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Paul says, you are a new batch of dough without infectious impurity. You, you are a new loaf in Corinth. Be what you really are. Who you already are. Unleavened, referring to their standing, obviously not their state. Why you are truly unleavened before God. Christ has been sacrificed as the Passover lamb. That's already happened. So you're late to the party. Get the leaven out. Paul uses the book of Exodus to teach church discipline. Then he grounds church discipline in the redemptive work of Christ. Verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, let's live out that part of the feast. The Christian life is a continual festival. A festival, this festival prefigured a life of holiness. Sin has been paid for by the redemptive work of Christ. Now we festival. Now we celebrate. Sins have been paid. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Let's stop here. Paul had written a previous letter to this church. As it turns out, 1 Corinthians wasn't 1 Corinthians. He had previous correspondence with them. A letter now lost. It was a non-canonical letter. And evidently in it, Paul told the church to not make themselves at home with sexually immoral people. Verse 10. Not at all meaning, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. Apparently the church had misinterpreted Paul's words. So he clarifies one aspect. He says, I didn't mean that you were to not have any social interaction with non-Christians. I'm not calling for a monastic community completely withdrawn from the world like monks or, or some Amish. I'm not calling for isolationism. You're not supposed to disengage from the world. Paul clarifies he is not calling for a radical termination of relationships with non-Christians, which is apparently how they received it and what they started doing. Jesus spent time with the immoral. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. FFC, don't you misunderstand this passage. Don't you say, well, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm only going to go to Christian bakeries and Christian doctors. I'm only going to ride with Christian Uber drivers. <laughs> this is why we as a church do not fill your calendar with church events. We want you to spend time with non-Christians to evangelize them. Paul is not saying cut off contact with the world. He intends for the gathering to be a retreat from the world. You need to be in the world in order to have this retreat on Sundays. They were too remote from the unbelieving world and too relaxed from the believing too relaxed with the believing world they were too remote from the non-believing world and they were too relaxed with the believing world I think it was Alistair Begg who helped me understand this they failed in both ways separating from the world because of a certain list of sins then failing to separate the church from those same list of sins now let's take verse 11 Phrase by phrase. Verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. They are so-called brothers. Claim to be Christians but do all this stuff without repentance. Do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. I'm a Christian but I have sex with someone to whom I am not married. That can't be allowed in the membership of the church. In other words, don't just church discipline for incest, church discipline for this whole list of sins. Let's start the list. He goes on. Greed. Someone who is ruthless and cutthroat. They cut corners and cheat people to make a dollar. Don't let them stand beside you in church and raise their hands while singing. The list continues. An idolater fooling around with other religions. This was really big in this church. Syncretism. Other religions bleeding into Christianity. Don't allow anyone to dabble with the occult. 
reviler. That's a verbally abusive person, an insulter, slapping people around with his words. If he yells at people all day during the week, treating them like trash, he better not be up in here on Sunday smiling, saying, God bless you. There is no room for a verbal abuser in the membership. Drunkard. The pendulum has officially swung in evangelicalism from teetotalism, totally abstain, to refusing to talk about alcohol. Don't be flippant with alcohol. Well, I'm a Christian, but I get drunk all the time. Paul says, no. Paul says, church discipline for that. They lead a small group, but their private life, they're drunkards. You shouldn't be in the church that harms the church's witness. Or swindler. Swindlers are robbers. They have a predatory relationship with people. They, they prey on them. Uh, how, how can I get money from them? How can I take advantage of them? The church is to be utterly distinct in our relationship with sex. Utterly distinct in our relationship with money. Utterly distinct in our relationship with speech. Utterly distinct in our relationship with alcohol. This is a short vice list. It's not meant to be exclusive. It's representative. It's, it's not only the kind of sin, but it's the posture toward that sin. The only sin that is church disciplined at FFC is the unrepentant sin. The only sin that is church disciplined at FFC is the unrepentant sin. All Christians sin. Everyone in this room sins on the daily. I've sinned about 15 times preaching the sermon already. <laughs> if we preach discipline every time someone sinned, we would be having meetings all day and night around here. And you say, Kyle, it's, it's impossible for people not to fall into sin. I agree. I would add it's also impossible for a true believer to live an unrepentant life. We have many members in our church who do things in this vice list. They have done things in this vice list and they were not removed from among us. Why? Because they had the Holy Spirit given to them at salvation and the Holy Spirit would not allow them to stay in that vice. The Spirit led them to repent. What are we to do with all these people who claim to be Christians but then they do all these things in the vice list without repentance. What are we to do with this man who was church disciplined from the church? Look at verse 11. The end of verse 11. Let this hit you. Not even to eat with such a one. What, is, what does that mean? Excommunicate him. Excommunion him. Don't take communion with him. It would be drinking himself to damnation. It's more than the Lord's table, but it's certainly not less than that. Commentators are maybe 70-30 on this. 30 thinking that it's only speaking about the Lord's table. 70 fall where I fall and think this speaks of private meals as well. Eating together was more than friendliness in the ancient world. It formed a social bond. You formed lasting friendships around a meal. This, this is forbidding close fellowship, close friendship. Now, this does not mean you walk into Olive Garden, you see them there, and you start throwing breadsticks at them. <laughs> Get out. I can't eat in the same restaurant. Which brings up an interesting question. How are we to treat someone who was church disciplined? How are we to treat someone who was church disciplined? You shouldn't continue to golf with him and laugh with him and joke with him or dine with him. You shouldn't casually spend time with someone like that. Don't do anything to cause that person to think little of the church's action. Let me say that again. Don't do anything to cause that person to think little of the church's action. There is a separation retained. You don't have normal hangout times anymore. We do talk, but all our conversations are around him repenting of his sin. We don't do casual social media banter anymore. They're certainly welcome to attend the corporate worship service here and hear the word preached and be convicted by the means God has provided. 
but they are no longer able to enjoy fellowship with the church as they did previously. We've excommunicated people at FFC and they show up from time to time and hear the preached word, but they can't take the Lord's Supper. I don't talk to them about sports. I talk to them about repenting of their flagrant immorality they were guilty of. Now what complicates this is someone can run from church discipline and go down the street to another church and join there and be a member in good standing. Well, that's a failure on the part of that pastor. But you stay faithful to scripture even when the other church doesn't. We have many new Christians here. And you may be thinking, I don't think I like church discipline. Sounds a bit cultish. Then you have received your definition of community from sitcoms, not the Bible. This may seem radical or even judicial to some of you, jarring to even talk like this, but let me just add to the shock. Church discipline isn't only the job of Kyle, Dan, and Daniel, it's your job as well. Church discipline isn't only the job of Kyle, Dan, and Daniel. It's your job as well. It's not just the pastors. It's the members too. And you say, well, Kyle, you know me. I don't want to be too hard on sin and cause problems for the pastors. You know I'm always thinking about the pastors. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what you're thinking about. Now, I've never seen that. I've had a ton of church people be too light on sin. I've never had them be too hard on sin. Now, I may end up eating those words, <laughs> but I just never experienced that. That is not our temptation around here to be too hard on sin. If you know of unrepentant sin in another member's life and you are not Matthew 18 addressing it, you are acting as an accomplice to that sin. You are doing a disservice to them, allowing their sinful activity to go unchecked. There are two types of rebellion, active and passive. And you are rebelling in a passive way. Church discipline in all its form, all its forms, was given by the head of the church, Jesus, for the health of the church. Family, family, why is it easier to tolerate unrepentant sin than challenge it? Don't be a coward. They are a professing Christian, but living a life that's anti-gospel. Call it out. The president of the seminary where I graduated from used to say, overlooking sin is not loving. It's sinful. Overlooking sin is not gracious. It's cowardice. Overlooking sin is not merciful. It's dangerous. Overlooking sin is not kind. It is hateful. May God give us the courage to do what his word has called us to do. Typically, I arrive at the truths. I've done that the entire sermon. I will teach, and then we will just kind of come up on the truth. I'm switching that up here. I'm going to give you the truth, and then I'm going to unpack it from the text. Here's the truth. Sin outside of the church is not the danger. Sin inside is the danger. Sin outside of the church is not the danger. Sin inside is the danger. Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside while we judge those on the inside. We are to do this on the inside of the church. God will do this on the outside of the church. We have been given internal standards to expel offenders. Basically, non-repentance and a refusal to turn from sin. Verse 13. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul says, you clean the church house and God will clean the world. Maybe I should flip it and, and put it in the Lord's language. God says, you clean the church house and I'll clean the world. Please note that Paul makes no mention about taking action against the woman, the stepmother, indicating that she is not a believer. It appears that he was in the church, but she was not. And this is why we have all of this talk about those inside and outside the church. You need to evangelize her and you need to church discipline him. We cannot Christianize society. This is not what we are called to do. 
I am not called to rescue the culture. I am not called to redeem society. Paul was telling the church, in essence, stop church disciplining the world by forcing Christian ethics on them. Lost people will act like lost people. You should expect that. Don't be disappointed when the world acts like the world. Cancer outside of the body is no threat to you. It's when it gets in the body that it destroys. And FFC, let me remind you, we do not need to smugly condemn the world on homosexuality but then not deal with immorality within our own ranks. One pastor said evangelism ministers to those outside of the church who are in bondage to sin. Church discipline ministers to those within the church who are in bondage to sin. Paul qualifies this. There is a distinction between immoral people in the church and immoral people in the world. Immoral believers harm the church more than immoral non-believers. Meaning you, you don't take action here with non-believers. And we vent. Man, we vent. I tell you what, I think of the, all these politicians. And God says, how about you let me take care of the politicians? They're outside the church. You need to worry about those inside the church. Non-Christian, this insider language has not been for you. Some of you just walked up in here and you don't know what you, you came into. Non-Christian, this insider language is not for you. You've been sitting in a family meeting, but you're not in the family. Some of you, I know you well, you, you sleep with a new partner every weekend. And you may ask, Kyle, why don't you church discipline me? I mean, I've been doing a lot of the things on the vice list, and you go out to eat with me, we hang out, you talk to me about Jesus. That is because you are a non-Christian. It is not my job to police your sin. It's my job to call you to repentance. You need to repent and believe on Jesus Christ as Lord. Your life is actually consistent with your belief. You reject Jesus Christ, so of course those things are going to be present with you. You are consistent. My role to you is to evangelize you. Paul says, outside of the church, I don't have any jurisdiction. Only in the church. And you non-Christians, you... You've got more than church discipline coming for you. You have divine discipline. The wrath of God. But how gracious for God to give you this day to repent and believe. Christian. This text illustrates the importance of church membership. This text illustrates the importance of church membership. The apostles in our text... <laughs> Think about this. The apostles in our text would have never affirmed a Christian's profession of faith if that Christian did not subject himself to the church. You need a church in your life to tell you the truth. And this is hard for us rugged, freedom-loving Americans. We love individualism. We love privatized Christianity. We would rather be ruined by praise than saved by criticism. There is no way I could obey this text with some of you. There is no way I could remove you from church membership because you are not members. You could do this entire vice list with no repentance and FFC could do nothing. And I don't know where you fit in this passage. A Christian not a member of a local church? Paul didn't address that type of person because it was so foreign to the New Testament. Church membership must not be treated carelessly or glibly. Let's pray together. Father, help us not to be an overly tolerant church or a church that's always on a witch hunt raising an eyebrow over everything. You've given us clear commands on how to protect the purity of the church. Help us to do it faithfully and gladly. I want to thank you for this local church. It is a gift in my life, Father. It is a joy to be in this family. I don't run from this accountability. I run to this accountability. 
Help our people to see the church and church membership as needed and important. Thank you for this good meal you fed us. Even if at first it tasted bitter, we liked it in the end because you've given us an appetite to obey your word. Amen.